Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 435 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Brian Clegg speaks with Caroline Sanderson about how he brought together his parallel passions for writing and for science, explains why we can all claim to be descended from royalty and describes the sense of wonder that he believes is integral to science writing. Best known as a popular science writer, Brian Clegg is the author of more than 40 books and a wealth of articles for a wide range of publications, including The Wall Street Journal, Nature, The Times and The Observer. Twice long-listed for the Royal Society Prize for Science Books, A majority of his work focuses on physics and maths, but he's also often written about the impact of science on everyday life. We don't just need the science, he says. We need translators, which is where people like me, science writers, come in. Brian, it's interesting and somewhat unusual, this role you have as a communicator of science. It's a bit betwixt and between, isn't it? Because as you've often said, you're not a scientist, but you know a lot more about science than the average lay reader. That's right. I mean, I studied science at university and I love science. Uh, but to be honest, I realised by the end of my time at university, I was not going to be a working scientist. Uh, my maths wasn't good enough to be a theoretician. And my practical skills, when I nearly burnt down the lab one Christmas, um, suggested that I probably wasn't going to be an experimental scientist either. And I worked in industry for quite a while, but I've always loved writing as well, Uh, you know, from being a child and making my own comics and all that kind of thing. I was writing a novel on the train to school when I was 15 or whatever. And it took me a long time to realise that bringing those two together would be something that not only I could do well, hopefully, but also would be something valuable because science is so important to our everyday lives, more obviously than ever, I think, since the COVID pandemic. But it's not always easy to get your head around. So as you say, acting as a translator and interpreter, I think can be a very useful role. Mm. It's a very skilled thing, I think, being a science writer. How how do you get the pitch just right between under and over explaining a difficult concept? I've been reading your book, Infinity, The Quest to Think the Unthinkable. And I'm just about keeping up, (laughs) but I can see how much thought has gone into the pitch of that. In some ways, it's better for me if I'm writing about something I'm not too expert in, because then I know myself where a lot of the pitfalls are, because I actually struggle until I've read through it in detail. So that, that can help. But also getting into the context uh, for me is what helps. So, you know, if you, you remember your science books from school or whatever, it was all about what the science itself is. But what popular science can do is bring in context in terms of history uh, and also people. Uh, you know, it helps you, I think, relate to the science if you can read a bit more about the people who have been involved. And there's always a danger that you get into the sort of uh, you know, expert position where you, everything is pinned on one or two individuals. And the fact is science has always been something that's built from generation to generation. But even so, I think getting that personal nature and that historical context really does help get over some of the more complex issues. So uh, I'm interested in how your, your skills and your enthusiasm as a writer came together with your love of science. My father was a, an industrial chemist. 
he didn't go to university. He started as a lab assistant and worked his way up. And the company he worked in was involved in uh, developing f- fabric conditioner. And when I was young, I remember my father coming home with jars full of strange green glop uh, to put in the washing machine, some of which didn't produce ideal results. But yes, that, that kind of exposure to the interface, if you like, between science and everyday life, I'm sure must have had an influence. But at the same time, I, I did always, as I say, love writing. I don't think it's quite so much the case now, but when I was at school, by the time you got into the sixth form, you had to go be either in a science stream or an art stream. You couldn't do both. My ideal, I think, probably would have been to have done English and science, but I wasn't allowed to. And the writing, as I say, did continue. I did uh, write in the background anyway. And when I was working at British Airways, which I did for 17 years as my only real job, I started writing for computer magazines because I was involved in computers quite a lot then. I think it started because one of the magazines actually asked me to review this interesting new product called Excel that nobody knew what it was going to be about. And from that, I then thought, oh, I like this. I like this writing business um, and started sending off things to magazines. And it gradually took over my life, really. You referred earlier to the fact that um, during the pandemic, we've 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 been confronted really with the vital way in which science can impact every single, single one of us. And one might also say, given that we're recording this on a day of record-breaking high temperatures, the understanding of climate science, not least from our politicians, is becoming ever more vital. So you've been a full-time writer for more than 20 years. Do you, do you feel that the value of what you do is becoming more evident or, or more, more urgent, maybe, even? I'd certainly see an urgency. It's not enough. I think, to have an emotional response to things like the environment, you have to understand the science behind it. And, you know, we think of the temperatures rising at the moment, as you say, understanding climate change is a bigger picture and we need to get our heads around quite a lot of different aspects of science to be able to understand that. Particularly, I suspect, because a lot of our, dare I say, a lot of our Politicians probably come from not scientific background. They, they typically, you know, may come from a, an arts or politics background uh, in terms of their degree. They can struggle particularly. I almost feel we ought to have uh, a resident science writer in the House of Commons to, to explain to the to politicians what it's all about. Oh, wouldn't that be wouldn't that be great? Yes, no more dodgy dodgy headlines. <laughs> I wouldn't guarantee that. <laughs> your books can do is, is challenge the instances of, of pseudoscience. You have a book called Lightning Often Strikes Twice, the 50 Biggest Misconceptions in Science. Uh, and flicking through that, uh, you know, some of them were not misconceptions for me, but others were. So it shows how, how prevalent these are. And um, reading your book, um, What Do You Think You Are? The Science of What Makes You, You. I, I read that with great interest. And I love the way that you debunk our sort of current obsession for ancestry and the DNA testing that is all the rage which you know purports to tell us who we are and TV programmes that tell celebrities they're descended from royalty for example. It's not so much with that one that it's a misconception in fact you know these people are descended from royalty it's just that it makes it sound like it's something special and the fact is I can guarantee that you are descended from royalty. I can guarantee that anybody is descended from royalty simply because uh, of the way that family trees work. Because every time you go back a generation, you double the number of people that are directly in your line. And because of that, 
as you go back through the generations, if you had a, imagined a family tree just growing backwards with more and more people in it, you quite quickly get to a state where there are many more people in that family tree than have ever existed, it looks like. The reason being that actually that we start to get loads and loads of overlaps. And you can work out statistically, if you go back a certain number of generations, anyone who has living descendants, uh, first of all, you will find, say, all in Europe will have descendants from this person. You go further, anyone in the world. So it's just opening up a little bit, uh, you know, the the facts uh, over and above the emotional side. And it's not to take away the emotion. Uh, You know, there's this classic thing going all the way back to things like, you know, Keats and and Lamia, where you accuses Newton of unweaving the rainbow by explaining it. I don't think science does unweave the rainbow. I think we still can see the beauty. We can still enjoy it. But we add an extra layer of understanding. And you can the two together, I think, is much more fun than just having one or the other. So I mentioned your book, What Do You Think You Are? And I, I love the challenge that you set yourself in this book. I mean, it's very... We talk about popular science writing. We talk about using popular science writer, but... But actually, but like that's very, it's multidisciplinary about what makes each of us a unique individual. There's physics in there, biology, genetics, some psychology, philosophy, evolutionary science. But also there's a chapter about our creativity as people and how that makes us unique. Is is this a sort of blended challenge, that kind of blended challenge, is that something you particularly relish? Absolutely. I mean, that's why I think being a science writer is actually a better job than being a real scientist because we can be you know butterflies who flit around the bits that interest us and being able to write a book like that I think is a bit of a privilege because a because I'm learning stuff some of that stuff I, I didn't know before I researched it but also because you get to look at all these different aspects that, that are of interest to you psychology I've always found fascinating in fact I've several times cursed my tutor when I was at university uh, in the first year, we had to choose a fourth topic because uh, we did four topics in the first year, and I wanted to do psychology, and he was uh, involved in crystalline state, he, uh, which was a big thing at the time, and persuaded me to do that. And I always really regretted it because I think psychology is is a fascinating topic, partly, frankly, because sometimes it, it gets it so wrong. But that's a different issue. But yeah, I, I think it's just n- nice to be able to see across different areas, see how they interact, and. In the end, you know, we're not all about our genes and we're not all about the physics of how we operate. We are complex organisms. Uh, you know, I think a lot of modern science is discovering complex, the importance of complexity uh, and the way that different systems interact with each other, different parts of our bodies interact, different parts of our brain, the way it acts. So having that sort of pulling it all together view, that holistic view of like, I think is really valuable, but also it's very enjoyable for me to do. And I also feel like you you set yourself an equal, if not greater, challenge with the book I mentioned earlier about infinity, which is subtitled The Quest to Think the Unthinkable. Now, that's got to be a challenge if there ever, ever was one. Yeah, I mean, whenever you speak about infinity, big comes into it inevitably. And for me... The inspiration really initially was when I was at school, we had a brilliant maths teacher and he was one who was prepared to go into more detail than you might expect. And he was talking about frogs leaping on a lily pond from pad, lily pad to pad uh, and how you could imagine if it jumped, say, a certain distance and then half that distance and then half that distance again, how it could actually jump an infinite set of times and still only travel a small distance. 
because each time you halve it, as you add it all together, it only adds up to a, a small number. And I find that totally incomprehensible at the time. And he was very kind and actually sort of went through it in some detail with me. And that started really a, a sort of background interest in the concept of infinity. Uh, and I think actually, you know, quite a lot of children, they do have that. You know, you, you go to a primary school and ask them to count for bigger and bigger. And they sort of get five million, ten million, infinity kind of thing. Uh, that This idea of something that just goes on forever is fascinating. And as you say, this is a good example of whether history is really important, that you do have to go back to ancient times, or for that matter, say to Galileo. He writes about infinity in a really quite entertaining way. In fact, compared with Newton, frankly, Galileo was a brilliant writer. He was, he was a popular science writer, pretty much. And he talks about infinity and how, for instance, you, know, you can add stuff to infinity and it's still the same size, and you can divide things up into smaller and smaller pieces and have one thing made up of a, an infinite set of infinite small pieces and all sorts of things like that in a way that is, is really quite entertaining. So it, it's, again, it's getting the balance, it's getting the context uh, and hopefully getting that right, bringing in the people, you know, so the people have been involved in the maths of infinity, some of whom, according to rumour, went mad as a result of trying to work it all out. So it's just a, one of those topics, I think, that has a lot going for it. Does it get any more challenging than that to explain? Yes. <laughs> I think <laughs> so that's what's fair. the most challenging, uh, when, you, when you're writing for a, a, a lay audience, where, where does it get really challenging? Rocket science, which is <laughs> actually, I'm told, very simple. Yeah, rocket science is very straightforward, really. And, you know, some of the things that are straightforward are quite surprising. Uh, so, for instance, the special theory of relativity. You know, as soon as you mention relativity, people think, oh, this is heavily complex. And the general theory, which is the bit that explains gravity, is mathematically complex. But the special theory, the sort of maths you do when you're 15 at school, that's enough. All you need, it's basically a bit of Pythagoras, and you're pretty much there, to be able to show, for instance, that you can time travel effectively. In fact, that's something that quite excites me about the way we teach science in schools I do think you know instead of teaching physics by starting with the basics of forces and electricity and stuff it'd be much more interesting I think to bring in something like relativity which isn't covered at all in GCSE and you can do that with the maths you've got but it is more exciting because you can talk about time travel and all that kind of stuff where it does get complex I think is where the mathematics is really what it's all about. So a lot of modern physics is driven from the maths. Uh, and although we can talk uh, about a, uh, sort of illustrations, things that give a feel for it, if you think about something like the Higgs boson that was in the news lot in uh, 2012, explaining that realistically requires a lot of maths. And the examples everybody gives of it is actually pretty much fiction. It's, it's illustrative fiction that sort of gives you a feel, but you just can't understand it without the maths. And you have to re- accept that there are aspects of modern physics you're never going to make it with, without having that mathematical background. I mean, I can't do the maths, frankly, so I can't expect anybody else to. <laughs> <laughs> so who are some of your favourite science explainers, like ancient and modern, the great communicators, would you say? In terms of ancient, as I mentioned, Galileo is surprisingly readable. Uh, I would really recommend his, his book, Two New Sciences, which is his uh, sort of general physics book, as opposed to the one about the, uh, uh, the Earth going around the sun. But in terms of more modern science writers, the, the one I think who started me was probably Simon Singh. I remember 
the first, I think it's probably the first popular science book I ever read was his, uh, it, well, it's actually maths, of course, the one on Fermat's last theorem, which I, I think I picked up on a, on a, one of those sort of, you know, those rotating little bookshelf things on a cross-channel ferry, desperate for, to find a book to read. And I was just fascinated because of the way he does the, the storytelling. He brings in the details of both the modern and ancient, if you like, so the, the original things that Fermat were doing, but also when Andrew Wiles actually did crack it eventually, this quite unusual person pulling those two things together, I think was very effective. And from then on, you know, lots of other science writers, you know, some uh, like John Grebin, who've written many, many excellent titles. And I enjoy reading popular science. In fact, as well as writing the books myself, I do review quite a lot of popular science titles. I have a popular science review blog, popularscience.co.uk, uh, or I review those books and, and it, it's just something I still do enjoy and, and particularly being able to go again beyond my particular field something like Nick Lane for instance who, who writes in biology there's some really excellent books out there a couple of the books that have done really well in sales I think particularly of Stephen Hawking's book actually aren't that good as popular science if I'm honest the brief history of time uh, I may be controversial in saying this, but actually isn't a great book. And quite a lot of people infamously bought it, read about 10 pages and then put it on the shelves. They sort of aspired to get their yeah. heads around it, didn't they? Because it right. sold so so brilliantly. That's but, right. But actually, because he's such a compelling figure, I guess, as well. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I mean, you know, he was a great scientist, but as a book, it's not a great book. Mm. Uh, uh, there are so many really good popular science books out there. I do hope, wish more people would give them a try. Do you think the kind of non-fiction you write rarely receives its due in terms of the imagination and creativity that goes into it. I know that reading science fiction is very important in your journey to becoming a writer. So what what's the mix of all that in terms of, you know, the kind of fact, the evidence, and then the imagination, the creativity? Yeah, it's absolutely true about science fiction, which I also got from my father, who was an enthusiast as well. I think the thing about science fiction, it, it, it has a bad press in some ways because it's so easy to stereotype it you know as being about aliens with ray guns in space or whatever but in reality what science fiction is about is people it's about how people experience different worlds and even just very small changes to our own world so some of the best science fiction is in a world that's very similar to our own but slightly different in some way because of some new technology or some new way of seeing the world around us. And I think that kind of fiction can be really good at opening your mind. Uh, I know plenty of scientists who say they've been inspired by science fiction, that reading science fiction or just watching something like Star Trek or whatever has in their past really pushed them in a new direction, made them think of something different. So it's imagination. It's seeing the world in a slightly different way, which I think is what science fiction does. And in the end, what science does, because science is about expanding our view, about opening up the way we look at things. I've always very much valued creativity. In fact, when I left my day job between doing that and becoming a full-time writer, I did do training in creativity for companies, uh, something I started doing when I was working at British Airways. And creativity is something we sometimes misunderstand. I think a great example would be if you were to compare, compare, say, a ballet dancer and a policeman, which is the more creative job? And the reflex answer to that is it's the ballet dancer. But actually, the ballet dancer just does what they're told. 
there's very little creativity in being a ballet dancer. The police person is actually out there on the street having to respond to things, having to come up with solutions. It's actually a much more creative role than being a ballet dancer. And I think creativity is absolutely central. For instance, the science itself, you know, scientists are themselves creative, but also to being able to put across these complex concepts and make them approachable. You have to think of different ways of doing it. So, for instance, at the moment, I'm just working on a book where I want to talk about things out in space. So things like supernovas and new galaxies or whatever. And I'm doing, putting that in the context of being on the space liner. So being out there, out in space, taking the tour, the grand tour. I'm the on a really cruise, grand tour. but Absolutely. in space, yeah. yes. And it's just thinking of ways to get to the science, to make it more approachable. I, th- I think you do need quite a bit of creativity. It is really important. We have this blinkered idea, you know, creativity is just about the arts. Of course, it's absolutely crucial to the arts, but it's also crucial to making decisions, to running a business, to writing any kind of book. It is central to what makes us human, I'd suggest, is being creative. Do we need closer kinship between sciences and the arts? I'd say absolutely. You know, it's not as bad as it once was. The the, the old idea of the two cultures what well, goes back to the late 50s uh, or thereabouts. And the point made then was that there are very few scientists, for instance, who won't have seen a Shakespeare play, but there are very few people in, from an arts background who would have any idea what the second law of thermodynamics, which is absolutely central to the way the universe works, is. And I think it's slightly weakened, that thing, and also the aspect of it where, if you like, the arts people look down on the scientists, I think was, was true in back then in the 50s, 60s. I don't think that is the case to the same degree. But I think even so, there is more separation than there should be. Each side can benefit from the other. And even thinking about it as sides in a way is almost unfair, you know, in the sense that we know very well that, say, people like Einstein, say, was was quite a decent violinist. You know, there are plenty of people in the sciences who partake in the arts in different ways. And there are some artists, certainly, who have some have an interest in science and, and have involved it in their arts. But I think it, there is still a bit of a separation. We could look wider when we're thinking about people's backgrounds and bring together more these different sides. Uh, and in the end, it's again, it's what popular science is all about, really, is, is that it is kind of an art in a way, but focused on, on a scientific subject. When I think, and, and your books prompted me to do this, when you think back to the sort of ancient, I guess, philosophers they would have described themselves as rather than scientists, and the sense of wonder that they had when they looked around them and tried to work out how the world worked or even how we work as an animal, there's such a sense of wonder in that, isn't there? And I wonder to what extent you think science writing is about wonder. I think it absolutely is, and... One of my favourite things to do is to go and give talks in schools. And if you go and give a talk to a junior school, say, you know, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, everybody is excited about science. I quite often do a talk in junior schools uh, where I'm talking about where the atoms in your body come from, the fact they're not new, they've been around for a long time. And when I mention that there definitely are atoms in their bodies that have been in dinosaurs, there's always this big intake of breath. Uh, You know, they really are excited by it. And it's across the board. And they 
get to senior school and get to about 13 and suddenly it's not cool anymore to be interested and excited by stuff. And we lose so many people at that point. And I really think we need to think more about how we can carry on getting that sense of excitement. Because people like me and working scientists, so both, both science writers and working scientists, I think have kept that sense of wonder where it's that kind of slightly childlike view of the world, I suppose, where you are still amazed. You know, we just had some a new patio laid outside and some of the stones have got fossils in them. And I just find that lovely and amazing. And it's just little things about the world around you that can always amaze you. And I think it comes back again to this thing, you know, that about it's not about unweaving the rainbow. It's about adding something extra, making... The way you look at the world, you know, I can look out there and see a beautiful tree, but also I can think about the amazing science that's going on in those leaves as they use light to generate energy in the tree and juice growth or whatever. It's going beyond just what you see to get some extra excitement, some extra wonder, as you say, uh, from the science. That was Brian Clegg in conversation with Caroline Sanderson. You can find out more about Brian on his website, brianclegg.net. And that concludes episode 435, which was recorded by Caroline Sanderson and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in How I Write, we hear about the relative merits of pen versus computer, the role stationery can play in planning, and some of the pros and cons of writing software. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.